coming up to me. Oh, I'm not feeling good. <sighs> Go away. I got 20 hours of flying to do tomorrow. Stay away. Uh, but it's great to be here again with everyone. Uh, I just want to give, I love to give a shout out and a thank you to somebody every Sunday because again, our church is not a one man show and it's something that I just so love about our church. So I just want to say thank you to Jim over here sitting in the back. Jim always hides in the back. And, um, if you ever notice that something is broken one Sunday and then by the next Sunday it's not broken anymore, it's usually Jim. Who, who fixed it, right? And so we just so appreciate you, Jim, and all that you do around here and keeping everything working. Thank you so much for that. And, and I didn't, I'm not the one who broke it. It's just I want to go on record saying that. All the things that break around here, it's not just me. Um, so today we are continuing in our sermon series. We are going through the book of Romans. Um, the book of Romans is what we as Christians know as the deepest, richest, most theological book of the New Testament. That's, that's the highlight of this book. It's like, it's so rich. It's so deep. It, there's so much theology there. And if we're really honest as kind of Western modern day Christians, because it's so rich in theology, we go, yeah, I'll pass. <laughs> I'd rather kind of not have to deal with big giant theological discussions because theology is hard. How many of you think theology is hard? It's okay to raise your hand because it is. <laughs> and, and there are some days when it actually feels quite messy sometimes. Like, what is theology? Like, theology is the study of God and of man and God's interaction with man, with humanity. And that can get very, very messy but we're working languages that none of us speak. You know, we're working with Greek. We're working with Hebrew. We're working within a culture that we can't even get our brains around that culture anymore. Because in 2,000 years, culture has changed a lot. The world looks very, very different today than what it looked like 2,000 years ago. But what's fascinating when you do study theology and you do study the context in which this letter was written, what you learn really quickly is the guess what? Is that the human heart has not changed at all in 2,000 years. Even though culture is radically different, this, this thing beating inside of me is exactly the same. It has not evolved. It is not any wiser <laughs> It's got better medicine and better electronics. I like my cell phone. Okay? But the deep-rootedness of the human problem has not changed. And so when we study the book of Romans, we're reminded that Paul is writing to the most sophisticated city in human history up to that point. They're very smart. They're very educated. Their political system, their religious systems, all their social, social services and army, military, everything is the greatest that humanity has ever seen. And then you have this church, this new thing, this new message that there is a God in heaven who created the heavens and the earth. And there's really, there's only one God. And all these other gods that people are worshiping, they're false. Whether they're just man-made or they're spirits that are trying to lead people astray. And that there's this one God and you can intimately know him. 
Not by keeping all of these rules and regulations and traditions, but you can intimately know the creator of the universe because of his one and only son, the Lord Jesus, who was born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, and who died for the sin of humanity. And when you turn from those sins, you step into the newness of life. That is the message that this new church, this new movement is preaching to this very sophisticated city. And so we're going to do something today, because normally when we study a passage like we do, we kind of look at a paragraph or two, or we look at a chapter. And one of the challenges that can happen when you study just a chapter at a time, or just a paragraph at a time, it's very easy to take that paragraph and take it out of its context. Right? So we're going to actually read Romans, the end, sorry, we're going to read the end of Romans chapter 7 and the beginning of Romans chapter 8. Because I guarantee it, most of us in this room understand Romans chapter 7 wrong. I understand Romans chapter 7 wrong. And if you understand Romans chapter 7 wrong, it's going to radically change your life on how God wants to work in and through you. You have to understand Romans chapter 7 in what comes next in Romans chapter 8. Okay? So to help set this up a little bit, I want to ask a question, and this is one of these questions that I'm go- I've asked a million times before, and you still haven't all raised your hands yet on this question. And I'm going to keep asking it until one Sunday every single person raises their hand, because I know you all do it. Okay? How many of you have ever at some point in your life made an excuse for something that you know you shouldn't have done? Every hand up. Uh, No. Okay. I'll ask it again another Sunday. Okay. Because there's some perfect people in the room. That's okay. No, I'm just teasing. Not trying to mock anybody. It is in our human nature to make an excuse for doing something that deep down we know we shouldn't do. Like if I snap at my wife for no reason, well, I'm tired. That's why I did it. I had a hard day at work. That's why I did it. Right? You make an excuse. (laughs) When I use colorful metaphors while I'm driving and non-pastoral language when I'm driving my car, (laughs) Well, it's because the other driver is a moron, uh, and I'm not supposed to say that either, okay? <laughs> See, there's something in us that we make excuses for the behavior that we are doing. We blame other people for what they do, and we condemn and criticize them, but we make, we show grace, and we make excuses for ourselves, Think about that while I'm reading Romans chapter 7. Because Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14, is the ultimate excuse maker for the church. That I could look at every single sin that I do, every single thing that I do wrong, whether I'm mistreating people, whether I'm dishonest at work, whether I'm misusing my sexuality, pornography, every single sin out there. Romans chapter 7 is your excuse to keep on doing it, if you understand this wrong. Okay? 
If you understand Romans chapter 7 properly, it'll radically change how you live your life. So let me read it. Let's look at the excuse that we make. Romans chapter 7, I'm going to start reading in verse 14. I picked a great Sunday to forget my glasses at home because this is, it's a little tricky in the language. So I'm going to read this slowly. I encourage you to follow along in your Bible with me. It says, now, so we know that the law is spiritual and I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Paul has been making this contrast about what the, what the law of Moses does. I didn't know I was a lawbreaker until I had the law. I didn't know I'm not allowed to drive 175 kilometers an hour until I saw the sign posting that says it's 110 on the highway. You don't know you're a lawbreaker until you know the law, right? So he's been doing talking about this for a couple of chapters. And then he says, he goes, he was sold as a slave to sin. That was that we talked about that being born into Adam. We're all under this condemnation from the sin of Adam that we've all inherited and the sin that you and I do, that we think, that we behave. We're a slave to it. If you think you're free, I'm going to use my sexuality because I can just do whatever I want. I'm free. You're not free. You're a slave. I'm going to spend my money and do whatever I want and live any way I want. You think you're free. You're actually a slave to those desires. So then he continues in verse 15 says, I do not, so I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good as it is. It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me. What is this? For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Now let me just stop here for a moment. We're going to keep reading into Romans chapter 8. If I stop reading right here, everyone leaves here on Sunday morning going, yeah, see, it's totally cool that I sin. You might feel like a wretched man and a wretched woman when you do it. But hey, Paul sins. Paul's totally okay. He's saying he's publicly admitting to the most advanced city on the planet that I'm struggling in my sin. 
And so because the great apostle who wrote most of the New Testament that God used in all of these amazing ways, if he's going to keep on sinning, why should I even bother dealing with mine? See, there's actually a school of thought when it comes to this passage. And the people who study the initial, these languages and work on theology and write the kind of all the big commentaries and all these books, that, that there's actually not total agreement on what Paul is even talking about here. <laughs> I love it when the theologians don't agree. And then we as Christians in our churches, we get so mad at each other, we punch each other in the throats with our Bibles because it's so clear. But the experts are going, no, it's not. <laughs> there's actually three schools of thoughts here. That there's Paul could be writing about three different groups of people. He could be writing about non-Christians who are still living under the law. So these non-Christians who have the law, like the Jewish people, they have the law of Moses, and they're realizing, I don't measure up. I want to do this. I want to obey the law desperately, but I don't. And the things that I want to do, I just don't have the power to do the things that I know I should be doing. So it could be that per, that group of people that Paul's talking about. He could be writing to the church saying, church, you struggle with sin, and this is the battle that is going on within you. Or he could be writing about himself individually, because he's using I statements, right? He's saying, me, I am, right? So when you go, well, if he's using, if Kevin is up here up front saying, I am, who am I talking about? Me, right? That's how English works, <laughs> right? But you got to kind of pay attention to this text. You got to pay attention to this text. So with those three kind of potential audiences that he's could be writing about here, let me continue reading a little bit more into Romans chapter eight. Let me start in verse one. I'm just going to read the first 11 verses of, of Romans chapter eight. Again, we get this picture of sin and law and wretchedness. And I can't do what I want to do. And the things I don't want to do, I, those things I do. And I, evil things I do and good things I don't do. This battle that's going on. Then in Romans 8, it starts off as, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in its weak, sorry, it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirits is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh 
cannot please God. It continues into verse 9. It says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death, <clears throat> excuse me, because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Suddenly when you read Romans chapter 8, the excuses that we want to make about how you and I are living our life in Romans chapter 7, suddenly, does it, do you notice your excuses being taken away? Do you notice that, hey, I'm struggling in living the way, in a way that pleases God. And so I'm going to like put fridge magnets on my, you know, fridge. I'm going to put Bible verses on my fridge that's going to continue to give me excuses to keep on sinning. Oh, what a wretched man I am. How many of you have that verse on your fridge? Okay. Or a bumper sticker on your car or a bookmark in your Bible. Oh, I'm just going to keep on giving in to the law of sin and death. You see, suddenly Romans chapter 8 changes the picture completely. That's not who you are. It's not who I am. It's not who the church is. This battle is already won. And you didn't win it. Jesus won it. And when Jesus said, it is finished, the power of sin and death is defeated. And when Jesus says, I'm going to send another, I'm going to send an advocate, that I'm going to empower you to live the life I've called you to, he meant it. And this can be very, very, very challenging because we are still in flesh, And when someone comes up to me and says, well, I don't sin anymore, and I'm completely free from, I've never sinned, I don't sin anymore, I go, eh, I'm just, I don't know if I want to get too close to you in case the lightning shows up, okay? Because we do still sin in flesh, absolutely. But I think one of the big weaknesses of the Western church is we are excusing our sin, And we're developing doctrine and theology around why I still sin instead of realizing that I actually have a power that God expects me to use to overcome sin in my life. Right. So is I believe and this is just my interpretation of Romans chapter seven, and I could be wrong. Other theologians would say I'm wrong and that's okay. But I think Romans chapter 7 is speaking to the non-Christian. He's speaking to the Jewish person. He's using himself as an example of before he knew Je- when before he knew Jesus. Because he uses verses in here like this. Like in verse, what is this, verse 18. Where it says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. 
Would the Apostle Paul say that knowing he's got the Holy Spirit in him? Probably not. Like, should you, follower of Jesus, who's got the Holy Spirit in you, if you've turned from your sin, you've accepted Jesus as Lord, the Bible's clear, the Holy Spirit comes in you, that's when you're born again, that's when you're made a new creation, should you ever have an attitude that there is absolutely no good in me? The answer is no. Okay, exactly. Okay. No, of course there's good in you. There's the greatest good in all the universes in you. So to sit there and say, yeah, no, there's nothing, there's no good in me. You're making God to be a liar. And God doesn't like that. It's sinful. Right? There, so, so I can't go and say Paul's talking about Christians here. I can't go and say he's even talking about himself. Because again, when you study this, Paul's using a method of writing that was very popular back then of putting yourself into the story so that people can relate to what you're saying. Like, it's what I do on Sunday morning. Like, when I tell you a personal story, I'm not trying to tell you a personal story in my sermon to show off (laughs) how spiritual I am or I'm I'm the hero of the story. What I'm actually trying to do is I'm trying to get you to go, I can relate to you so that, I, I'll, so that you'll listen to me. And that's why I tell personal stories and not just stories and examples of dead people. Because I want you to be able to relate to what we're talking about. So I, it, it's just a method of, of teaching that we use to help people see themselves. And this is what Paul is doing. He's speaking, this is what life before Jesus was like. I was miserable because I desperately wanted to do good. You see, before I was a Christian, I became a Christian in my mid-20s. Everyone thought I was good. And I had everybody fooled. Because I wasn't good. I was dishonest with my money. I, I didn't have a high respect for women. I was not good. And I knew it. But everyone, if you just looked at the outward appearance, wow, boy, Kevin's good. This is what Paul's getting at. He's driving home the importance to the Jewish people and to any other religion that teaches you perform, 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 perform. Because if you don't perform, God's not going to love you. God's going to be disappointed with you. And I don't know about you, but I have this little voice that sits quite comfortably on my shoulder that loves to tell me how bad I am at performing. Man, Kevin, you really stink at your job. Wow, Kevin, you're really not that good of a husband. Wow, Kevin, man, your kids are all grown up now, man. You still never even figured out how to get them to do their homework in high school. Man, did you ever fail them? There's this voice there that's really good at trying to make me feel like I'm supposed to perform. And Paul is saying, that's not the law you are under, church. You're under a new law. Now, the challenge that you and I face is how do we live out this new law? 
where suddenly he says that you're now under this law of the spirit. Back in November, I was at our uh, denomination's national convention. They had it at Niagara Falls this year. And our president, Steve Jones, you know, who travels all over the world, travels all across Canada, visiting our churches. He got up in his address and he talked about how we as Fellowship Baptist Evangelical Churches of Canada, he goes, we have an amazing reputation around the world as being men and women of the word of God. He said, we love the word of God. We preach the word of God. We are all like we, man, we are known around the world about the importance of the word of God. And that's a great thing. And then he said, but we're really bad with the spirit of God. Really bad. We love the Holy Spirit in a box. We love the Holy Spirit where we can control where we can plan, where we can organize. A lot of our churches, if we're honest, he's not even really welcome. We like God the Father. God the Father is great, and we love kind of the holiness of God the Father and the sovereignty of God the Father and the power of God the Father. We love Jesus because Jesus is the guy who takes away my sin. Without Jesus, I'm in trouble with God the Father. So Jesus is great. It's kind of that brother that I wish I had. Bring him to a party, turn water into wine. He's great to have around. Saves my soul. We're good with that. But then we have Holy Spirit. Who I'm not too sure I want to listen to him. And it's a him, not an it. It's not the force. Move along if you don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Move along. The nerd comes out occasionally. Okay? It's not the force. It's not just a move of God. It's a person of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he's here. And he speaks. And he guides. And he moves. And he empowers. He corrects. He rebukes. He changes us. He transforms us. You see, we're under a new law. We're not under this law where we go, oh, what a wretched man I am because I don't do what I wish I would do. If you actually find yourself still struggling in sin and you feel like a wretched man and a wretched woman, my question is, how are you submitting to Holy Spirit in your life? Because he actually wants to set you free from that. He actually wants to deliver you from that. He actually wants to empower you to overcome this thing that is making you feel like a wretched woman and a wretched man. Right? And so there's a couple of things in here that I want us to kind of highlight that, that, you know, to help us see how this tension of these two ideas of this law of sin and yet this law of the spirit that's within us. Right? I think first and foremost, and I try to do this when I do pastoral counseling with people, is stop saying you'll never get rid of a sin. Stop it. In Jesus' name, stop it. Stop saying, I will have this sin forever. What did you just do? You just affirmed something that God doesn't want. Stop it. I'm always going to struggle with pornography. No, you're not. 
And I can speak as someone who's been delivered from it for longer than I can count now. It's gone in Jesus' name. I'm always going to be struggling with anger. I'm always going to be struggling with jealousy. I'm always going to do, we have to drop that language. Am I currently struggling with something? Sure. Am I kind of struggling with seeing God working in an area of my life right now? Okay. But using language like always and never is not in your Bible. And my deepest desire for you is to use the word of God in the way the word of God intended it. Know where you land in Romans 7 and Romans 8. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are not in Romans 7. You are in Romans 8. Live out of Romans 8 in the struggles that are highlighted in Romans 7. Okay, so we've got to change the language here. Okay. There's also, again, we do have to understand that there is still a pull on this side of heaven. Again, this is why when, when kind of sometimes I meet some Christians, and I'm not trying to pick on them, but when I meet some Christians, I go, well, you know, I don't sin anymore. I'm perfect. Uh, it's just like, eh. just be careful with that kind of language, too. Because, again, God's perfection is all 613 laws of the Old Testament. That's important to remember. When the Bible talks about righteousness, complete total righteousness, it's talking about 613 commandments in the Old Testament and the law of Moses and in the Torah and the tradition of the elders. And I guarantee it, the modern day Canadian church did not keep all 613 of those because most of them we don't even understand anymore. Did you bring your offering to the temple? Did you bring olive oil to church this morning? Who brought olive oil to church this morning? None of you? Bunch of sinners. Okay, you sinned. Okay, so we've got to be mindful of this kind of language and how sin is actually described. Okay, so watch out for language that I'm always going to have sin. I'm never going to have sin. Those are two different things because, again, there is still this tension of flesh versus spirit. There is still on this side of heaven still a tension that we live in what theologians call the full, complete kingdom of God right now. But not yet. We're waiting for the day when Jesus returns in complete, total fulfillment. When there will be no more sorrow, no more death, no more sin, no more suffering, no more disease, no more death. That's to come. But we live in this fullness of the presence of God. Right? And so the big idea that I want to kind of leave you with, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this and how we can try to live this out together, is this is we need to be supernaturally empowered by the Spirit more and more. When I was in uh, Columbia in the fall, I was with a bunch of our fellowship pastors, and I was with the president of our fellowship. Um, we were having dinner together, and uh, one of the missionaries there is a guy who spends half, of his, half the year in Columbia, half the year here in Canada, traveling from different churches, equipping churches to do missions work. And he said, Kevin, what is the one thing that your church needs the most? And I was like, oh, Felipe, let me tell you. Let me give you the list of everything my church needs. 
right? It's like, oh, since the pandemic, like our attendance is down 50%, our giving is down, volunteerism is down, like, I'm, and you're going to hear more about this tonight. So this is a preamble to what I'm going to share tonight. And needs are skyrocketing and, and, and people are tired and exhausted and frustrated and, and there's so many things. And these are all the things going through my head. I need a bigger building. I need a bigger staff. I, I need a better car. I, like, I'm just thinking of everything I need. And instead of whining and complaining, which we can do in our human nature, as I looked at him and said, Philip, you know what I need? I just need more of the power of the Holy Spirit. I need him to scare me again. Because life's a little too comfortable. It's a little too easy. You can kind of do it in your own strength. And he's like, really? That's what you want? I said, yeah, I think the thing my church needs the most is to be supernaturally empowered by the Spirit more and more. Now, all the Baptists got nervous. I'm nervous. Because we don't fully get it. What does it truly mean to walk with the Spirit? It doesn't mean that I need to fall on the ground and start barking like a cat. <laughs> no, that's not what it means. And I don't mean to be insulting to people. But we have so much fear and confusion on this topic. Right? And I think Romans chapter 8 gives us a picture. Right? It gives us a picture of what walking in the Spirit looks like. So, Two questions that I want you to ask yourself as kind of way of application. And I really encourage you to talk about these in your family. Talk about these in your life group this week. Right? Ask yourself questions like this. How do you view the Spirit's work in your life? How do you view Holy Spirit's work in your life? What does that, even, what does that question even mean for you? Is your Christian faith, your Christian tradition, you know, come to church, volunteer, donate, you know, do the kids ministry, youth ministry, small group, volunteer occasionally. Has it become so systematic and predictable that you would go, man, I can't remember the last time the Holy Spirit showed up. I can't remember I felt this close, this move or this power or I've seen something miraculous. Right? Ask yourself, how do you view Holy Spirit's work in your life? Like I love here in verse 12, and I really wish I brought my glasses. Man, I'm alive, I'm getting old. Right? It says here, um, verse 12. Which one's 12? So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy. No, that's not verse 12. Where am I? I can't even see it. Anyways, look up verse 12. Okay? Here's what verse 12 is getting at. When you don't have obligation to the flesh, You don't. When your flesh wants you to do something that you know you don't want to do, you don't have to do it. When the flesh is pulling you to look at something on your computer that you know you shouldn't look at, you don't have to give in to it. The flesh is not the boss. Okay, The spirit's the boss, but the flesh has gotten used to what you've been feeding it for a long time. And the flesh is going to fight for it. Every Sunday morning, my flesh is looking at Libby cookies going, oh, yeah, I'm having the whole plate. This is where I'm not Christian anymore. I don't share. Share? No, you don't share Libby cookies. You consume Libby cookies (laughs) before anyone else gets to them. That's what the flesh cries out for. But the flesh is not your master. God is your master. Does it take some discipline? Yes. Does it take some people praying for you? Yes. Yes. But are you even using that language? 
that the Spirit wants to set me free from this. If you don't even use the language, why would he ever do it? It's not how you pray. It's not how I pray. Like I've been sharing, and again, I'm not sharing this to boast. I'm sharing hopefully that this can relate and help. Like I've been on this journey where I'm, I'm old. I'm getting older. And I want to be able to do ministry until the second God calls me home. I want to be in my 80s and preaching the gospel and leading people to Jesus. I want to be able to do it the best that I can. But in order to do it, I have to stop eating the way I eat. I eat garbage. It's killing me. And so I've dropped 70 pounds, and it's a battle. And I pray all the time, Holy Spirit, don't let me eat that. Holy Spirit, work, move. This is new language that I'm trying to adopt. Because I didn't pray that way before. Right? You and I are pulled to something that the flesh desperately wants. How do you view the Spirit's work in your life? You don't have to listen to the flesh. You don't. Because you're not under that law. Right? And then the other question that we have to talk about is, how do you release the Spirit's work in your life? How do you release the Spirit's work in your life? Paul kind of gives a hint to this in verse 15. Right When he says, you know, I do not understand what I do. You know, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. This is this tension that we're in. Even though that's not the law you're under, I get that we're still at tension. Right? And sometimes I talk to so many people who, when they're kind of trying to figure out, well, I don't really understand why the Spirit of God is not really working in my life. I don't understand why God feels far away. I don't really understand. And, and just asking basic 101 Christianity questions. So you suddenly realize, well, that's why God feels so far. That's why you're not seeing the Spirit work. How often are you reading your Bible? Are you filling your mind with the Word of God? Are you filling your mind and your heart with things that are godly? Or are you constantly just filling your mind and your heart with things that are worldly? It's weird. Again, this is God's doing something in my old age, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm becoming one of those weird religious people. And I'm okay with it. It's like movies and TV shows that I used to love. I don't enjoy them anymore. Like most of the movies that I love, like where I'm watching human beings created in the image and likeness of God, slaughtering and killing other image bearers of God that I used to find entertaining. I'm not entertained by it anymore. It bothers me now. There's this tension that starts happening when you realize and it's not a criticism about what you watch on Netflix. It's not a judgment or anything like that. But you have to ask if you're not feeling this release of the spirit in your life, well, what am I filling my life with? What, what's entertaining me? What's competing for my thoughts? What's pulling on my heart? I don't read the word of God. I don't pray. I don't know how to pray. I stumble in my prayer life. I... Don't really connect with other Christians. 
I don't let people speak into my life and correct me. Who are you, pastor, to tell me how to live my life? Nobody. I'm not nobody to tell you how to live your life. God might be trying to tell you how to live your life. (laughs) We don't like correction. We don't like rebuking. We don't like, and so we're constantly, literally saying, yeah, Holy Spirit, you stay over there. Thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul. Thank you, Father God, for creating, pouring out all your blessings on me. But that's the extent of the relationship. (laughs) But we need to be superly empowered by the Spirit of God more and more. This world is messy. This world is broken. If you think the last three years were challenging, I'm no prophet, but I think it's just going to get worse. It's going to get worse for the church. It just is. The writing's on the wall. We're not a Christian nation, and we're not trying to make one. We're trying to lead people to Jesus. We're trying to see people set free from the power of sin and death. And your spiritual enemy hates that. Hates it, hates it, hates it, hates it. And the only thing that's going to be able to stand up against our spiritual enemy is the Holy Spirit working within his church. Wherever God sends you, school, work, community, hobby groups, sports teams, whatever it is, God wants to empower you there to bring light and love and live this life of Romans chapter 8. You see, in Romans chapter 8, we get freedom. Freedom from the sins that grip us. Freedom from the sin that makes us feel like we're a wretched woman or a wretched man. Freedom from death. Freedom from sin. So what do you need to do this week to move out of Romans chapter 7 and live your life out of Romans chapter 8? Maybe some of you here in the room or some of us at Greenbelt Online, maybe you've never welcomed Jesus into your life. And for you, that is step one. Because you have been living as a good churchgoer for a long time. You've been living like a man, a woman, a boy or girl who you're trying to be good. And it's exhausting trying to be good. It's exhausting trying to live out of Romans chapter 7. And right now, right where you are, you can step into Romans chapter 8 by praying exactly like how, how Paul puts it in here. What's going to save me from this existence of trying to be good? He says it at the end of chapter 7. He goes, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what moves you from Romans 7 to Romans chapter 8. When you make that declaration in your heart, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Come into my life. Make me new. And if you pray that today in person, tell me afterwards in the cafe. If you do that at Greenbelt Online, a pop-up shows up. Click that button. Let us know so we can celebrate with you. And then for those of us who we've done that before, we've made that confession of faith. We've stepped into that relationship. What do you need to do to let Holy Spirit work a little bit more in your life? You might have to let him bring you to do something scary. You just might. Maybe life's a little too comfortable. It's a little too easy. Maybe church is a little too comfortable. 
and a little too easy. So pray, Spirit. (laughs) What do you want to do? If you truly want me to live this out, to see victory over sin in my life, to use me as an instrument for your glory in this day and this age, Spirit, I welcome you to work. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what you're going to do. But I'm going to trust it as we walk together as a family of God, believing our position of Romans 8, that God wants to do immeasurably more through you as you let Holy Spirit work in your life. Let's pray together. Father God, I ask for your forgiveness in the times when I have tried to put you in a box, Holy Spirit. When I like things to be organized and I like things to be simple and I like things to be not complicated, forgive me for my fear. Forgive me when I have made excuses for my sin, going, hey, the Apostle Paul, he sins, so it's okay that if I keep sinning, Forgive me for speaking that into existence. Because <laughs> that's not the way you would want me to live. It's not the way you want your church to live. Because God, you sent your spirit to empower your church, to strengthen your church, to set us free from the sin that would grip us, to release spiritual gifts into the body of Christ so that we can lovingly build one another up for your glory that we could be used, that we would have words to speak so that we could just show the love of Jesus everywhere that we go, to overcome fear that is gripping us. Spirit, I ask that you would work, that you would continue to guide, and you would continue to bless this church and your church around the city and across the globe, that your power and that your will would be done through your bride. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.